0: Welcome to the New Books Network. The fundamental questions that are being entertained by the German Synod are essentially not up for discussion or vote. So, I would say, um, in terms of the the essence of the faith, a, a bishop cannot dissent from the teachings of the church. So, when each one of us was consecrated a bishop, one of the promises we make is that we will fully embrace, teach, defend uh, what the Catholic Church teaches, even to the point of shedding our blood for it.
1: In April and May of 1521, Martin Luther defended his challenge to the Pope at the Diet of Worms, concluding with, here I stand, I can do no other. He remained in excommunication and the Protestant Reformation was off to the races. Now, 502 years later in Germany, the bishops of the Synodal Way have again challenged the authority of the Pope and the teachings of the church. Ignoring Pope Francis's disapproval, they voted to bless same-sex unions and promote the ordination of women and transgendered persons, and in short, to rethink the social teachings of the Catholic church. So what's going on and what's gonna happen next? And is there a right way for Catholic bishops to disagree with each other and settle the social questions of our quickly changing world? I ask these questions to Bishop Donald Hyng, who has written on the subject, on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odeniets, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Our guest today is Bishop Donald Hying. He is the Bishop of the Diocese of Madison, Wisconsin, where he has been serving since 2019. This is the bishop's second appearance on the show. He was here in June of 2022. That was episode 19, and he talked about mysticism. That was a great discussion, and I learned a lot, and I'll link to the program in the notes below. Today, I'd like to ask the bishop about the synod on synodality and what the German bishops are up to, and especially about the letter that the bishop wrote in March of 2023, just a little less than two months ago, that got a lot of attention nationally and internationally, criticizing the goings-on there. So it's a great honor to have you on the show once again, Bishop Hying.
0: Chris, it's a joy to be with you. Thank you for your podcasts and just for um giving a platform for people to comment on uh, contemporary issues regarding the church and the Catholic faith. Thank you. It's,
1: it's my it's my honor, and I enjoy it so much. Um, I have a I have a joke that I got from uh, uh, Joe Lieberman, who was a senator from Connecticut, and he wrote a book about the Sabbath. And one of the jokes that he has in there is there's a, there's a guy who sits in the front um, at a synagogue, but this would work just as well in a Catholic church. So the guy always sits in the first pew. And as soon as the, the priest goes up to speak, or the, in that case, the rabbi, he immediately falls asleep. He immediately falls asleep, even before the priest can say the first word of the sermon. Finally, you know, the pastor meets him after, after mass and says, so, so why are you always falling asleep in the middle, right before I start talking? And he says, oh, well, well Father, that's because I have such confidence in what you're going to say.
0: <laughs> that's great
1: yeah, yeah i um, don't need to listen
0: to it right yeah i know it'll be good yeah,
1: that's right i'm sure there'll be no errors that i have to uh follow up with uh, um right. so first let's start uh could you describe what we are doing now as a as a global church the synod on synodality what it is what it is for how is going uh listeners to the show will know a, a bit about it because i did ask sister natalie Beckhard at the vatican uh right after uh, she published, Enlarge the Size of Your Tent. So we under- I think we understand the big picture, but um, what do you think is going on and have there been unintended consequences in the process?
0: Yeah, as I understand it, it's been a consultative process that the Holy Father has asked for throughout the church. And I think as probably everyone knows, dioceses were asked to have listening sessions regarding the synod and just really asking folks What's on their mind and heart, you know, regarding the practice of the faith? Here in Madison, we frame the questions perhaps more simply uh, to kind of uncomplicate some of the um, complexity of it, and we just framed it as, well, "What is going well in terms of your experience of the diocese, your parish? You know, where do you see the Holy Spirit working? Um, what seems to be bearing fruit?" And then what are deficits? What what things need attention or correction? Kind of you know, light and shadow. So that's kind of how we frame the questions and the conversation. And uh, the, the conversation went well, I think. We also had uh, multiple different mechanisms for uh, people to really weigh in on what's on their minds and hearts. We had a listening session in every county of our 11 county diocese regarding especially rural issues and the needs of our, our folks that live on farms and in small towns. We had listening sessions for the Hispanics in our diocese and in five regional gatherings. And also just, we utilized um, Catholic Leadership Institute's um, Disciple Maker Index to really get a pulse on what's happening in, in our people and in our diocese. So I think Pope's hope for the, uh, the Senate is really to do that on a global basis. And then to bring some of those synthesized issues and questions to the synod, which will take place uh, this fall in Rome, um, I think much of it has to do with really how do we um, relate to people that are not uh, living uh, the fullness uh, of the faith because of you know questions of marriage, uh, of sexuality. Gender, you know all all those issues that are roiling our our culture at least in the West. So that's just kind of um setting the table for it, I think,
1: yeah. And I think that leads us right to my next question, it which is, uh, can you explain what the German bishops, as we call them as a collect collective? what are what are they doing and expound on your? objections and i'll just preface a little bit because sometimes we think of the church as a hierarchy in the way a corporation or a a government might be but in fact if you go back to the new testament bishops are often brothers and i remember saint paul correcting saint peter you know uh on on how to keep kosher or not keep kosher so um what did you say to your brother or, or what did you say about your brothers what are they up to um
0: what do you think yeah so for those that perhaps don't know um there's been a German synodal way that's been kind of in motion, I think, for at least two to three years. And it was led by the German bishops, but in consultation, I believe, with with priests and with laity throughout the country. And they're really looking at some fundamental questions regarding uh, the doctrine and, and practice of the Catholic faith in Germany. And all of that came to a um, conclusion at the beginning of March, you know, almost two months ago now, where where they put certain questions up to a vote. And one of them was the blessing of unions that are not valid in the eyes of the church, including same-sex unions. Another question was who could be ordained a priest or deacon? So they're advocating at least for women deacons and perhaps um, transgendered persons being allowed to be priests it's pretty much a radical rewrite of of Catholic sexual teaching, and also kind of a restructuring, I think, of um, kind of the bishop's authority and some of the the questions of of authority and governance within the church. And I simply wrote a relatively brief response to that, uh, articulating my concerns about where the German Synod went and the fact that. For us as Catholics, it's the scriptures, it's our tradition, it's what's in the Bible, it's what's in the catechism, it's what's in our two thousand-year practice of the faith that is normative. And such questions can't simply be put up for a vote in in assembly, and then somehow that changes what we've always believed and practiced. So I was just questioning the validity of what they're doing, but also just the divisiveness of it. You know, that here's a national church that's essentially going off the rails in terms of some fundamental things of what we believe in and teach.
1: Yeah, and you emphasize that we, you know, we love everybody and we welcome everybody, but we don't bless every choice. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a debate I think we're having certainly in the, the senatal meetings here in California. I'm in Berkeley, California. So it's a very progressive part of the world. Mm-hmm. And those are the exactly the same sort of things my parishioners brought up when we had our our meetings. Our meetings, mm-hmm. I, it must have been now a year or two years ago, but it was all on Zoom. I remember that. And uh, we were saying the exact same thing. And then, um, so we're having a big discussion. And I I believe the, the Holy Father corrected the German bishops, but uh, they're going... Forward. Anyway, what do you think is the what's the correct way to bring up proposals for change in this rapidly transformative time? Like, well, how how is a bishop supposed to dissent as an obedient son and yet a shepherd to his people? And how does the the church discern the will of the Holy Spirit going forward? Because I sometimes feel all we're doing is reflecting our <laughs> local po- politics, but that's not what the church is, right? The church doesn't respond to the politics of the moment. What's how should this how
0: should this play out in your view? Yeah, I would say, Chris, that it really comes down to a fundamental understanding of revelation, of ecclesiology, and the essence of Catholicism. So as Catholics, we believe that God has fully revealed Himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, that in turn Jesus Christ founded the church as the extension of his life, presence, saving mission in the history of the world through time and space, and that the Lord fully equips the church with the grace to teach the fullness of the truth and that what has been revealed to the church, both through scripture and tradition and through the natural law, that all of that is essentially unchangeable, that we can come to a deeper understanding of it. We can come to perhaps a more nuanced um, articulation of it but that the fundamental questions that are being entertained by the German synod are essentially not up for discussion or vote. So I would say um, in terms of the the essence of the faith, a a bishop cannot dissent from the teachings of the church. So when each one of us was consecrated a bishop, one of the promises we make is that we will fully embrace, teach, defend uh, what the Catholic church teaches even to the point of shedding our blood for it. So I take that um, very seriously, as every bishop should, that we're we're not here to change church teaching or to be radically innovative. We're here to help people understand the, the truth of what God has revealed to us in Christ through the church and to live that as best we can and to find our way to heaven.
1: You know, I feel like Pontius Pilate was saying, "What is truth?" Or, you know, mm-hmm. is my truth the same as your truth? But is it possible for one bishop to say, like, "I, I the Holy Spirit tells me, you know, there's there's no place for same-sex uh, unions given the theology of the body of Saint John Paul II, given two thousand years of, of Christian tradition," and his brother bishop in another context saying, "Well, you know, the world has changed. I have a lot of parishioners who are." let's say either married civically or happily living as a same sex couple and i don't want to kick them out and i don't want to condemn them um the holy spirit is telling me that here we should change the way we changed on i don't know what else you know kosher law or 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 slavery or other big issues over over the millennia is that possible or is that not possible
0: it's not possible when it comes to the objectivity of morality so especially when we look at questions of of sexuality and we, we look at the scriptures and we look at you know what what is revealed to us in the New Testament, in our tradition, in natural law. So it can't be that one bishop says, Yes, you know, same-sex marriage is okay, and another bishop says that it isn't. It isn't that um because the culture has shifted, that suddenly what was wrong is now right. So we, we know that there's a givenness to human nature that the human person is essentially the same as the human person has always been and so morality doesn't shift just because people's mores have shifted and that, that's the beauty of the church is our constancy you know that, that what the Lord has revealed to us is true and by the nature of it being true it's true for everybody all the time so it can't It can't shift in terms of its um, being true or not true. And I think that's really what's up for grabs here, especially with the German Synod, is that are we saying that we're willing to abandon what Scripture and the Catechism have always consistently taught for the sake of retaining people in the church or for the sake of accommodating ourselves to the age? And I just think of the passage in Romans when St. Paul says, Do not conform yourself to the present age, but be renewed by the transformation of your mind. So it's really: do we believe what the Lord has revealed to us, that that is the fullness of truth, that it is unchanging, and that it's true for everyone all the time? Do we believe that, or do we think the human person is essentially malleable, and that we can kind of define our own reality? I think that's the fundamental argument here.
1: Mm -hmm. Do do you have to make those decisions? in your home diocese, or do your priests come to you and say, you know, uh, uh your grace, what do I do? I have <laughs> this, I have this couple, this, you know, a gay couple and they're coming to mass. Um, do I welcome them? Do I take them aside and counsel them? I, you know, I'm in, again, in Berkeley, California, I'm often seeing, uh, two, two men embracing in the pews in front of me. And we, uh, I think in that spirit, nobody says like, oh, you, you know, that's you're you're in error because they've, they've come for mass and they've come for the sacraments. And uh, is that something that you face in in Wisconsin?
0: I'm sure it, we face it everywhere in terms of um, people in the pews and, and who's in the pews and who's fully living the faith. Um, I don't think the idea of pastoral accompaniment was just invented Ten years ago, I mean, every every priest who is pastorally sensitive understands that we can't just hand the Bible or the catechism to somebody and say, go read this. Here's the answer. (laughs) Right. So we want to enter into a relationship of of spiritual friendship, of trust, of unconditional concern for the person. And I think if somebody comes to realize that their pastor or their next door neighbor or somebody within the parish generally loves them and cares about them. And it's in that context then that I think we're able to speak, uh, the the truth of of Christ's teachings to them in a way that fuses love and truth. So I always say the truth without love becomes harsh, judgmental, rigid love without truth becomes sentimental, sappy malleable put love and truth together and you have the firepower of the gospel so jesus always spoke the truth to people but he did it because he they he loved them and he wanted them to know the truth Mm -hmm. and anybody that's a parent knows that there's times you have to say no to your children and they may even hate you for it but you're doing it because you love them because you know that what they want is not going to be good for them yeah. And you just pray that eventually they come to realize that and they come to their senses. But the church, like any good mother, is going to tell us what's not good for us. And she does so not because we're intolerant or exclusive, but because we love people enough that we want them to know the truth. So the, the whole idea of accompaniment, I think, is, is a very apropos one, but it's an accompaniment leading people somewhere. And when we look at how Jesus... Accompany people in the new testament he befriended them he'd love them in their sinfulness and i think his unconditional acceptance of them freed them up to be able to experience conversion and to move to a different place so it isn't just loving people in their in their lostness or their sinfulness and leaving them there it's loving them and equipping them to to come to realize the truth of what the church teaches and then to embrace that as best they can
1: I, I think that's a very beautiful uh model both you know b- holding both ideas at the same time which we can do uh and i love that because w- w- our churches as pope francis has said are our hospitals for for the sick and everybody in those pews is a sinner one way or another you can uh one thing that's obvious to me just looking at the sizes of families in the united states is everybody is using contraception. There's very few people with enormous families that where there were, you know, 70 years ago, but I don't feel like we're, I don't know. I don't, I feel like we gently remind people like, no, oh, there's a right and wrong way. And still we, we love them and embrace them. Or, you know, it doesn't, I, I don't want to just use sexual examples. I'm sure there's a, a million other things in a million other areas in which we continue to sin in, uh, you know, our gluttony and avarice and greed and, uh, uh, all 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 the things
0: right yeah. what i find chris with catholics under the age of 40 let's say they either want the real thing mm-hmm. they either want the substantive thing or they're not interested at all yeah so no nobody under 40 wants like a watered down culturally relevant version of catholicism because they can get that anywhere I mean, you don't need true. to go to the church you don't need to go to the church to find what the culture is saying So young people that are attracted to the church are attracted to it precisely because in many ways it is countercultural, because it gives us uh, this this place of truth to stand upon. It gives us stability and security and and a certainty and a, a faith to lead us through life. So I think this idea that somehow if we change all of the teachings and become relevant there's nothing more irrelevant than irrelevancy. You know, fashion by <laughs> its nature is still born. Yeah. So if we look at the track record of liberal Protestantism, essentially that's what liberal Protestantism has, has attempted to do, to adapt itself to the culture. And by that fact, it it kind of becomes irrelevant. So I always think if we, if we surrender on the life issues, on the sexual issues, and really on, on the social teaching issues, we we've surrendered the treasure that the Lord has entrusted us with, and in the end, no one's going to be attracted to that anyway.
1: Yeah, uh, two 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 points come to mind. One is I asked um, Father Jim Martin, the the Jesuit who talks on uh, this issue for America magazine, do you want us to become Episcopalians? Uh, and he said, no, that's not a that's not what he wants. He doesn't he doesn't want us to be Episcopalians. Uh, Because you could, if you don't, if you want, you know, a a gay married woman priest, just go to the next church down the street, and um, so. And I feel that's true, especially of the Germans, where the Protestant Reformation began uh, in 1517. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why, why not just, uh, why not just move? I remember when the a few African Anglican bishops just converted to Catholicism when all those changes were happening. Why do you think the the German
0: bishops don't just go
1: to the place they want?
0: I I think for, I've heard it said, I don't know if this is true, but I know in Germany, the church receives an extraordinary amount, large amount of money from the government. So some people say, oh, it's just, it's all about the money, right? The other thing I think is if you lose faith in the idea and in the conviction, that humanity fundamentally needs salvation and that the fundamental mission of the church is to proclaim and offer the salvation that is given to us in Jesus Christ. So if you stop believing that, then you essentially have lost the, the essential identity and mission of the church, And then, but you've still got this enormous institution, what are you going to do with all of it? Then it just kind of becomes about, well, let's just make the world a better place. So then the faith becomes about, you know, cleaning up the environment, getting plastic out of the oceans, dealing with immigration, helping the poor. And and the church does all those things and it's part of our social teaching. But it, it doesn't get at the heart of what it is, which is the salvation offered to us by faith in the gospel, by our reception of the sacraments and by a living relationship with Christ. And if if you stop believing that that's essential, then. You're going to try to make the church more attractive to modern man so that we can keep getting the resources we need to do all these immense social projects.
1: But the church is not of the world, even though it's in the world. Mm -hmm. It has an eye on the next world.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with Reinhold Niebuhr at all, Chris. Yes. Yeah. So he was a Protestant theologian in the 1950s, and he explored kind of the relationship of religion and culture and he, he framed it as Christ in culture. So so there's fundamentally three ways of looking at it. One is that Christ is against culture. So we think of groups like the Amish who essentially reject modern culture and kind of live apart. It would be Christ against culture. The other is the second is Christ equals culture. And there I think you kind of see the churches that have adapted themselves to the spirit of the age. So we'll just kind of stay culturally relevant. We'll change our teaching. We'll adapt it to what people find attractive. The third is Christ transforming culture. And that's always been the Catholic approach. That we don't reject the world. Catholics are immersed in the world. But we're here to transform the world through faith. But the only way that faith can transform culture is if we don't completely become identified with it. So there needs to be points of friction and indeed even conflict at times that we're, we're not going to just back down because the culture has suddenly shifted and now tells us what to do. Yeah, And I think that really gets to the vision of Pope John the Twenty-Third and the Second Vatican Council. If you read his opening address on October 11th, 1962, his whole vision for the council was that let's renew the church so the church can renew and sanctify the modern world. And I think in some cases what happened was the modern world ended up dictating what the church should be and um, that can never be. So for us, it's always Christ transforming culture.
1: Yeah, and I, is it Niebuhr, and I might be getting this wrong, who said that we build with crooked timbers, that we are all, I'm. I might, that might be a misattribution, but the idea is that we are flawed ministers you know, the body of Christ is made up of these people, but God chooses to work through people who, who are all sinful, who are all flawed. And with mm-hmm. it, he builds something quite miraculous and beautiful rather mm-hmm. than, you know, coming out of the clouds and dictating, do this, don't do that sort of a thing. And that, mm-hmm. there's a mystery in, in how we do that and, and why we do that.
0: Right. I think the mo- the most striking thing I find about the New Testament is that Jesus perfectly saves the human race. Through His death and resurrection, gives us the Holy Spirit, founds the Church, and before He leaves, He entrusts it to sinful, fallible yeah. human beings, and entrusts it precisely to the people that betrayed Him, denied Him, ran away from the cross. So there we see the the mysterious mixture of the supernatural and the natural, or the divine and the human, in the life of the Church, that that God is always using. Um, broken fallible sinful human beings to affect his will even though he knows we're going to mess it all up but he's given us the holy spirit as the the infallible guide to keep the church from falling into permanent error and sin and i just find that astonishing astonishing
1: absolutely what a privilege to to be in that to be in that role mm-hmm. as god's children um So I'm a very amateurish theologian myself, but I am an actual historian. And I I did my work on the early 16th century. So Martin Luther comes to mind when I think of German bishops. Um, Do you think there was a way, obviously Luther didn't take it, but do you think there was a way where he could have appropriately protested the selling of indulgences and what Johann Tetzel was doing in Germany at the time and have avoided the whole reformation in a way that you know the the Pope and the and his and the bishops would have heard his protest. Uh, is there is there an appropriate way for somebody down below to say, "Let's think about this." Maybe that's what the synod is, on synodality. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think an important thing to remember there, if if I'm articulating it correctly, is that you know what Luther started to question at the beginning was something that should rightfully be questioned and criticized. Yeah. the sale of indulgences, the the misuse of that whole understanding of what an indulgence is and how it's related to salvation and to faith. So he began on the right path. He wanted the church to be more purely Christian, to be more purely Christ-centered, and and all that was good. And certainly the medieval church needed much reform, as we always do, and the church is always in need of reform. And I read a recent book on Trent that Said there was an attempt at reconciliation, and obviously it never worked. But I think you see uh, increasing entrenchment on both sides. You know, that the folks in Rome were really kind of unwilling to listen to some of Martin Luther's rightful criticisms. And I think Luther became increasingly radical, where he began to question not only church practice, but really church doctrine. The theology of the eucharist theology of the sacraments uh the whole mystery of grace and faith um salvation by faith or works all of that so it, it got to an increasing divide that, it, that became this unapproachable chasm
1: mm-hmm.
0: um but i think at the beginning if if both parties would have been perhaps more open to what the other was saying you know all of that could have been avoided perhaps yeah yeah
1: uh, another interesting thing, thinking historically is how slow change was back in the early modern period, you know, mm-hmm. from the invention of the printing press to to Luther's Bible, printed widely some seventy five years past. Mm-hmm. And here we live at if I go back to seventy five years ago, you you know not only was, uh, sort of grassroots industrial things like, oh look, refrigeration, that means women don't have to go to the marketplace every day. Oh look, the Second World War. Now women work in factories. Oh look, contraception sold w- widely, more, you know, that 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 transformation, let alone things like the computer, ar- the internet, artificial intelligence, air travel, space travel, every the the power of the computer sitting here in my pocket, everything has changed so quickly that within a lifetime, sometimes within a couple of years, certainly the sexual issues,
0: mm-hmm. um, you
1: know, I'm I'm only 45 and it has changed so much in the last two decades. And with the, the things that my um, students who are teenagers take for granted are very different than the things mm-hmm. I thought were true in the most fundamental and biological way. Uh, perhaps you've already answered this, which is, you know, about holding truth and, and loving people. But what do you think about being alive and being a bishop uh, and shepherding the flock at this time? And do you think it'll just accelerate going forward? Do you have any feelings on that?
0: Yeah, it's certainly an unprecedented, challenging time, Chris. And I, I wonder, you know, what you just said sparked a thought. You know, do you think that maybe because with technology, we feel that we can control and define And manipulate so much of reality that we just automatically feel that we can do that as well with our human nature you know that if if technology can make all these other things that were just unimaginable even a few years ago a reality that my own human nature my own sexual identity or the essence of who i am as a person that all of that can be manipulated, redefined, changed as well. That technology gives us this illusion that that everything is kind of up for grabs. And I think maybe that's the fundamental error of, of our age. Um, recently read a column by George Weigel, and he said, he was quoting somebody I can't remember, but he said essentially that we're in the third fundamental um humongous challenge in the history of the church. And the first was the question, who is God? So you look at all the councils that led up to Nicaea and Chalcedon to articulate who is Jesus, who is God, the Trinity, you know, the hypostatic union. The second big cataclysm was the Reformation and the, and the question percolating at that point was, who is the church? And essentially that was answered by the Council of Trent, you know, from the Catholic perspective. And he would say that the third cataclysmic challenge that we're currently in is who is the human person. So when you look at all of the cultural battles at the moment, it's really they're all about anthropology. They're all about who is the human person and our conviction of who the human person is as one made in the image and likeness of God, who has a soul who has a given sexual identity, who was created for God and to be in relationship. Um, But there's a givenness to our human nature. So if you don't believe that, then essentially human person is just malleable plastic, um, open to redefinition that I can have a different gender tomorrow if I feel like it, that it's all just kind of fluid and I can just kind of make it up. I mean, that's the fundamental struggle that we're in, I think.
1: Yeah, well that's such a and also that has to do with the speed of things because how many centuries passed from the you know the resurrection to the council of nicaea 300 years right before people could articulate and agree on how the the dynamics of the trinity and and so on Mm -hmm. and now everything's changing so quickly and people get very heated and, and emotional about it that you think it'll level out and um course i i've been wrong about every prediction i've ever made it's hard to guess (laughs) what'll happen
0: next right it's hard to know isn't it i I think yeah you know perhaps the church will shrink in numbers i mean we certainly are seemingly in the west even though it seems like africa is is the great hope uh, of the present and future of the catholic church but but i think you're going to see an increased bifurcation between those who still follow the traditional judeo-christian understanding of the world and those who don't and it you know, perhaps will be a minority but i, I think will always be a vital minority w- within perhaps even this majority culture that becomes increasingly not only secularized but i would say paganized as well so you'd like to think that at some point it would bottom out and people would come to their senses but um i don't know I, i'm not certain but you you put that yeah. That whole movement for radical autonomy, you put that into the American context where we value autonomy probably more than any other culture in the world. know, nobody's going to tell us what to do. You know, this whole idea of freedom and independence. Um, so I think it plays itself out with a particular vehemence in our culture um, because of its American nature, you know, that. In a special way, we we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. So here along comes a church that claims to have all these answers, these objective truths, these unchangeable teachings, these doctrines about everything. And I think for for postmodern sensibilities, it's just kind of, I I don't accept any of that.
1: Yeah. So I think evangelization
0: becomes more difficult.
1: There's also the demographic problem, not for us, that... You know the, the the traditional people are having lots of kids, mm-hmm. whereas the progressive woke types are not having kids at all. And so mm-hmm. the reason the United States is okay is because we have a high rate of immigration. But mm-hmm. other places which uh, see this new self self-defin- self definition, they uh, they're a little more allergic to children, either for personal choice or for personal wealth or for environmental. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe maybe it's fine. <laughs> maybe mm-hmm. it'll maybe it'll all work out. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think um, obviously both Pope John Paul and Pope Benedict, as Europeans, kind of lamented the you know the decline of Europe in so many ways. But certainly the demographics is part of that. And you know, they raised the question: What does it say about a culture when people have fundamentally lost so much confidence in the future that they're refusing to have children? So to be open to life, to have a child is a, a profound act of hope, yeah, for the future. And uh, essentially Europe is committing demographic suicide. And so, as you said, so are we if it wasn't for um immigration. and, and that's where abortion comes in. And so the same people that trumpet the need for unrestricted abortion would in some cases be the same people that lament, you know, the fact that we don't have enough people to fill all the positions we have in our economy. It's like, well, there's 65 million people that are not here mm-hmm. because, you know, we aborted them. Um, so it, it's all of that converging in, in a pretty dramatic way.
1: Yeah, that's so important. Uh, do you think we're doing enough to make it easy for women who are uh, in financial stress to have their baby? You know, as I was recently arguing about abortion with uh, a dear friend, and she pointed out, look, a lot of these women would love to have a kid, but it's it's hard for them. Uh, Do you think we as a church have, you know, obviously this is a a central mission, but it's like help women who don't want to kill their babies to have them safely, comfortably and be supported by their community? Because it's easy to argue about law, but this is better. Yeah.
0: I think we could I think we do a pretty good job in terms of trying to welcome a company and support women while they're pregnant and even in the early years of of their children's lives. You know, when we think of what pregnancy help centers do, what what parishes do. I think what what's still missing, and certainly the government and our laws need to play a role in this, is how do we help women long term to be able to to raise a family, you know, perhaps as a single parent, you know, so things like childcare, um, just wages, affordable housing. I mean, all of that's part of it as well. So I think the church does a good job in kind of the immediacy of trying to help a a woman give life to her baby. I think the, the bigger strategic, perhaps more institutional questions are, you know, how do we help people to have a flourishing family? You know, for years to come, and that I think we can we can certainly do better on.
1: Yeah, do you have any predictions for what will happen between the Holy Father and uh, the German bishops?
0: Yeah, not really. I mean, essentially nothing's happened since March, right? So yeah, I, I would not have any friv knowledge in that regard. But when people say to me that they're concerned or worried or distressed about, you know, what's going on in the church or what's going on in Germany. I always say, we have the Bible, we have the catechism, we have our tradition. We know what the Lord has revealed to us. And that's essentially unchangeable. And that's what we need to cling to. And that's what we need to practice. And that's what we need to joyfully live. And perhaps a joyful Catholic who has confidence because the Lord has been raised from the dead is the greatest Point of evangelization is that this this life in Christ gives us joy gives us hope gives us energy doesn't doesn't make us sad doesn't make us harsh doesn't make us brittle it it, it frees us and liberates us and when people can see that in us um that becomes a, a point of persuasion and transformation
1: that's that's a beautiful proclamation of the gospel is yeah uh, it's a lot clearer now and uh, as always I come away from listening to you with more confidence and more joy. Uh, Would you close with a prayer for our listeners, their families, our world?
0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, in these days of the resurrection, we ask that you continue to transform our hearts, that we may be filled with your life, your grace, your love, and that we may give witness to the world around us the discipleship in you sets us free that the teachings of the church are not a restriction on our freedom but actually help us to become more fully human and to become the people you have called us to be in the midst of all of this challenge and change may we remain fixed with our hearts on you as the north star as the one who guides us as the good shepherd who brings us home and we ask your blessing on all of our listeners and their intentions In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Nail's spear shall pierce him through the cross, be born for me, for you. And hail. Hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son.
1: Christodinitz and Bishop Donald Hine recorded this conversation on Monday, May 1st, 2023. It was the feast day of St. Joseph the Worker, a day that was introduced in 1955 by Pope Pius XII to overlap with International Workers' Day, or May Day. And when he created the year of St. Joseph a couple years ago, Pope Francis called him the earthly shadow of the Heavenly Father, who was watching over Jesus and protecting him his whole life. St. Joseph the Worker, pray for us and for our church. The music from our program comes from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Check them out at www.gscoasterband.com. And our logo, the image of the dog, comes from a window in a Spanish monastery at Santo Domingo de Silos, which the Dominican friars of England, Scotland, and Wales have kindly let me take from their website, www.english.op.org. This, this is Christ the King whom... Shepherds garden, angels sing.